you've had that experience, yeah. right? Yeah. It's, I feel like it's an exclusive brown dude experience thing. If you cycle and have a helmet, especially in winter, because you're wearing like a jumper or something like that. It's right. like over there. I'm like, ah, <laughs> oh, yeah, every time. Uh, I just want to order some ramen to eat. Yeah, in, yeah. please. Like. <laughs> We would like to acknowledge that we are on stolen Yagara and Turbul lands, and as settlers of colour, we reflect upon the damaging legacy of colonisation. Always was, always will be. So my name is Navin. I work for a company called Lug and Carry, which is all about getting people on e-bikes. And what we do is lease out family e-bikes. Okay. So um, bikes that are, you know, help carry kids, commute, that sort of stuff. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. And then just to slowly tease out and trace your path towards here. So upbringing was Malaysia, was that right? Yeah, so I grew up in Malaysia. Um, dad was Sri Lankan Tamil. Uh-huh. Um, migrant from Sri Lanka. Yeah. Uh, Mum is Punjabi. Um, right, right. Once again, migrant from Punjab, my grandparents. Uh-huh. Uh, grew up in Malaysia, lived there till I was 15. And then uh, my sister was moving over here for school and dad was like, join her. So about a month later, I turned Just out. the two of you, without the parents? Uh, my mum came along. Okay. Uh, yeah, my mum came along. Right. So we moved up here in 2004. Mm-hmm. It was the hottest summer I remember. We didn't have air conditioning. We had air conditioning in one room. And it right. Was boiling hot right and moving uh, up here being Mianjin, brisbane that's where you yeah logan yeah um, logan yeah right. so uh moved in 2004 um high school university down the gold coast um typical asian upbringing i had three choices law medicine or accounting okay um yeah. and ended up doing a law and business not degree. engineering not engineering, not engineering. No. okay you did you do engineering no i did none of those but like <laughs> when you say when you say three I mean, it definitely makes sense that you, you mentioned you put finance in there, but I guess sometimes Oh, yeah, sometimes actually, it's law, medicine, engineering. Yeah, right, actually, yeah, yeah engineering. <laughs> um, and no, I didn't, didn't really like science as much. So mm. did a law and business degree mm. um, and then had the dreams of becoming a big four um, top-tier partner, was, you know, the 20-year-old gold. Yeah. Uh, ended up in professional services for about 10 years. And realized I genuinely hated working for large corporations. <laughs> um, but I worked with a lot of startups. So that's kind of moved my angle into working with different startups. Yeah. Um, did that. And over COVID, I had a really cool job, actually. I was uh, working as a finance and ops manager for a YouTube management company. Mm-hmm. Uh, did that over COVID. I think like a lot of people had a huge crisis of faith, wondering mm. what the hell you're doing with your life. Yeah. Um, and wanted to really try and see if I could make the world better in, you know, no Mother Teresa or Greta Thunberg, but try my way. So right, right. ended up working for a marketing firm that focused on sustainability and yeah. environmentally friendly brands. Okay. And that's a fantastic opportunity. Right. Before this one, this opportunity came up, um, really big stuff that I've always been interested in has been around micromobility. Um, and how we can, you know, move that's not in a car, right. uh, which led me to my car role. Okay. Yeah. So I want to drill back to, I had three options. Tell me how that plays out and what's that like to experience? Um, I think at the time you don't really realize, I, d- I didn't realize those were my options, if that makes sense. Yeah. It was your upbringing, you probably know, and I guess people listen to this podcast probably understand is, 
you don't really see outside university. Right, yeah. Growing up, it was university was the goal. Yeah. You know, through school, through everything, it was university was the goal. And then as you're getting to that, it's, okay, what are people successful doing? And I use that in quotation marks. Because yeah. successful in Malaysia particularly was, when you finish year 10 in Malaysia of grade form three, you get two options. You get to go to the science stream or the art stream. Um, the smart students went to the science stream. Oh. Because you had to score Whoa. a certain, uh, I think it was seven subjects. Yeah. And you had to get, no, it was, yeah, seven or, nine, seven or nine subjects, I can't remember now. And you had to get number of A's in like central exams, right? Mm. And based on your grades, you, do, you got into the science stream where you could do science-based subjects or you got into the art stream, which, which means that you do arts-based subjects. Which meant that you'd failed. Yeah, where we met you weren't successful. So everybody wanted to get... So it was always conditioned in me that, you know, wow. doing biology, chemistry, physics, um, there's something called ad math and all this stuff yeah. was like signs of success. So okay. as you do that, and then I moved to Australia in year 10 and I was like, I ain't doing any of that subjects. Right. Because um, here's obviously different. And, you know, I did drama in school and legal studies and... Um, I negotiated with my mom that I do one science subject, which was biology. And mm. I guess, but that sort of training, you know, that upbringing, yeah. not, not anything against my parents or anything, but that's just the culture that we like, I guess, Indians and grew up in, right? Mm. Um, meant that really, you know, for me to be successful, yeah. I had to be a doctor, an engineer or a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, so I picked law because it was the least sciencey one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And so my, um, my parents were based in the Middle East when they were working and saving up to move to uh, Australia. And so I'm familiar with that dynamic of, of uh, being a, of brown folks that are working in a kind of very classed system in the Middle East. What was your experience of, of the, the dynamic in Malaysia? So Malaysia is really interesting when it comes to, and I'll really segment Indians particularly. Yeah. Um, there's sort of two types of migrants to Malaysia Indians. There were the, um, I guess, white collar workers, which the British brought over. Yeah. So, you know, the clerks, the educated one. My grandmother was a headmistress of a school. Uh, my grandfather was a clerk on an estate. Um, and then you had the other side, which were the blue collar traditional migrant workers. Um, so there was a pretty big class difference between the two. Mm. Um, and yeah, so that definitely existed in Malaysia. And it was a interesting one because, you know, the Tamils particularly mm. um, were all sort of the lower caste. They were brought in as migrant workers and things like that. Would you say that's one of the most significant, like I wonder if it's between Canada and Malay perhaps Canada tips it over, but would you say that's one of the, um, the, the biggest Tamil diaspora communities? Yeah. Yeah, right. Malaysia is huge. Yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, I think you're right. I think I was looking this up the other day. Okay. Um, but yeah, Malaysia would be right behind like can countries like Canada. There we go. UK and things right. like that. Yeah. Right. So does that allow what I, because um, I, I really look at UK and Canada as like really strong hubs for South Asian identity. Do you think there is that in Malaysia or are they not able to sort of get into the power structures and like, like what does it feel like that? Yeah, you definitely don't, they don't get into the power structures in yeah. Malaysia, but um, there is a pretty strong South Asian community. Mm. Um, my upbringing was quite different in that sense that I wasn't really brought up as a South Asian. I wasn't really brought up as a Punjabi because I was the mix of the two. Yeah. So, um, like, I don't speak any Indian languages, okay. for example. Right. Um, I speak Malay and English. 
Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, I was brought up, I brought up as Malaysian per se. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's kind of where I grew up in. And I think only later, only now in the later on in life, um, I'm starting to understand a little bit more about South Asian culture and um, things like that. Right, right, right. And then, so 2000, 2004, year 10, I'm guessing you're around age 15, 16. Yeah. And you're uprooted from your your sort of native place, like everything you'd, <laughs> everything you'd known up to that point, and you're dropped into Logan. Yeah, suburban Brisbane. Yeah, what? What? Tell me, what? What is it? <laughs> with your sister and your mum? Yeah, uh, do you, is there more members to your family? Uh, dad came over for a little while to yeah. help set us up, but he works in Malaysia, okay. so he went so back. Family there. of four. Yeah, family of four. Okay, um, it's quite interesting. I remember the so the school we went to, um, which I loved. Is that I have so much fond memories of it. Yeah. They had an international arm, right? Okay, now. From hearing me sound, this I grew is up back in Malaysia. No, this is in Australia. In, okay. Yeah. So yeah, they. Um, so I grew up speaking English. Um, right. yeah. So English is my first language. Mm. Um, even though I got extra time in university. Yeah. Uh, in high school, because it was t- theoretically my second language. Um, <laughs> so I came over here, and they they have this international school attached to this private schools in in Australia, where they teach you English and train you up to be able to go into the high school system. Okay, um, like a bridging course kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Like, but it's your first language. Yeah. But so everyone you has... You happy to cruise? Like what was the... <laughs> so I had to go through and do the exam so they can uh, figure out what my level of English yeah, is, okay. right? Yeah. And so to give you an idea, you know, um, mum and dad both studied in English. Uh, my grandmother was a headmistress mm. and an English teacher. Mm. That sort of, you know, so I grew up speaking English. Yeah. Um, so we sat in this doing this exam and then they have this conversation with you and they like talk about, you know, what you do, everything like that. And I was like, oh, I love reading. My favorite author at the time is John Grisham, and 15-year-old kid, right? right? So I love reading like legal thrillers and all this kind of stuff. And were they're like- intentionally flexing or? No, they were just having a conversation. I was like, because I was really into read. I, I used to love, I was a bookworm when I was younger. Yeah, okay. Um, and they're like, okay. Then they get to sit for this exam. And then they sit for this, like to figure out what level of English you are. And then they're yeah. like halfway through, they're like, yeah, you don't need to do this. Just, just go. <laughs> Yes, they, at least they paid you that respect. Yeah, so they, they, they then sent me to the main school, sent my sister and I to the main school. They're just like, yeah, you don't need to spend just, six months because it makes sense, it, yeah. right? You do this English course to bridge you so that you can understand Australia and yeah, um, yeah. go to school and right. write great. Um, and you have a better level of English than our native speakers. I think you'll be fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, just, just, just go ahead. Um, and I remember the first day of school, my sister and I, you know, um, yeah. and there's really like we went and got our uniforms and, you know, it's it's weird, right? You got long socks and like a hat and like all this. What did you come? What what was the uniform standard? Just shorts and t- shorts and a shirt. So okay. you kind of think of English public school type, you know, right. um, like a shirt, short sleeve shirt, shorts, white shoes. But, th- but then what you're describing sort of reminds me of like some kind of like Victorian era private school. Well, most private schools here have, you know, you wear the long socks yeah. with the black clock shoes. Mm-hmm. Then you've got the hat the clocks, yeah. and the blazer. Mm-hmm. And it's all this red quad foreign stuff, right? So, and the hat's the weirdest thing, right? Um, so I put the hat on. So my sister and I walked to school. Like, it's a right, wide brim yeah. brown or something. Like, yeah, yeah. So it's a gray hat, white okay. brim hat, right? Yeah. Everyone's wearing a hat. And then you go to this school and um, it's just this horde of white people coming at you. <laughs> In Lo- in Logan at in that Logan, time, yeah. so that is nineties, like when? Oh, two thousand four. Sorry, two thousand four. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's just this horde of white people coming at you, and I think we had only been in Australia at the time for a couple of weeks. So mm. uh, my sister and mum had come over 
few months before to check out the schools and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And yeah, that was a huge culture shock to me, which I think is really interesting because, you know, I'd never seen that many white people. <laughs> yeah, because like uh, white people would congregate towards international schools in Malaysia, right? Correct. And, and, and you weren't in one? There. No, I wasn't one there. And so what was the kind of um, visibly cultural mix at your school in, in Malaysia? Um, pretty much mix of Chinese, Malays, Indians. Uh, mm. Malaysia is a very multicultural country. Yeah. So you get all those different races okay. intermingling. A few white, you know, uh, white students and things like that. Okay, there was. Um, yeah. But I'd been to Europe with family at that time before, but mm. really coming, you know, um, seeing everybody being white yeah. um, was a huge culture shock. Yeah. Um, and the funny thing is now it's the opposite, right? I've been here now 18 years. Yeah, particularly in Logan. No, just in, like, just in general, right? Yeah. Um, I'm used to being the minority in when I walk when I walk on the street and when I walk around and stuff like that, uh-huh. that when I went to India a couple of years ago, where everybody was Indian, yeah, that was the culture shock. That was the switch for me. Okay, yeah. So I think, right. it, yeah, because I, I kind of think back to that moment of like school and like all these white students coming to white. Students. Everyone's like, yeah, I've never seen so many white people in my life. Right, right. Um, and, and then over twenty years, you've yeah, I've just got back. Yeah, I've flipped. Yeah, and I've gotten used to always generally, you know, in Brisbane. More often than not, we're the minority. Right. Yeah. Uh, when you walk into a pub, when you walk into a concert, when you mm. walk into a shopping center. Yeah. Um, and then when I went to India for the first time. Yeah. Um, where everyone looked like me. Yeah. Which parts of India? Uh, I was just in the. I went to Delhi yeah. and um, just the Golden Triangle for a friend's wedding. Okay. Um, and it was a huge culture shock for me. Yeah. Because I wasn't used to being. The majority again. Yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting. Did how that th- sink in? Like, how did it feel after? Well, yeah, it, was, it took me a long time to get used to that. Yeah. Uh, it took me a while to get used to that. Because, um, yeah, it was a strange, definitely a strange thing. I never realized because you get so used to, yeah. you know, we don't notice it as much, but because we're always in the minority, yes. you know, you walk out on the street. Yeah. Um, but over there, it's the other way around. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> right, right. So so I, I come from like the, the, the burger ethnicity in, in, in Sri Lanka. So that's also like a single digit minor, like percentage minority in Sri Lanka. So when I went back to Sri Lanka and um, lived there for some time, I was still othered and it's like, wait, where are you from? Why didn't you speak properly? Like, you know, these sorts of things. <laughs> but then after I did at the, time I was all set on Sri Lanka because that was my heritage and I had no interest in this giant colossal India adventure that all my white Australian friends would just like, oh, my trip's to India, I'm going to go to India. I had no interest in that. (laughs) But after being a creative working in Sri Lanka, I met these like incredible next level creatives from from India and I was like, I need to go over there and see what's happening that's producing these people. And when I went over over there, um, I was, was traveling with a native a Hindi speaker at the time, so that that did did help, but uh, it's and there was parts where that was just useless as well because like you know you would be in Tamil Nadu and I'd have to rely on my dodgy dodgy you know formative little little Tamil because Hindi was like uh, what? Um, <laughs> but the thing that I enjoyed and I experienced for the very first time in India was just being able to disappear. Yeah, interesting. Did, did you feel that when you were, I could just disappear? No one cared because, like, the country's so big. There's people that 
don't speak your language anyway because there's movement, there's train networks, like people, there's migrant labor. There's, it, it's kind of more normal for other brown folks or other South Asian folks to not be like you'll find like Nepalis like right down in the south or you'll find like the, the, the migration for, for work is huge. And that was just like, I just remember that being such a profound, like I could just, I was so used to just being othered in every single space, in every single country. And like, you know, they said, go back to where you came from and I go back to where I came from. And that still, <laughs> still wasn't. Yeah, uh, and it was wasn't until I could be in India that I could just disappear, and that was a, a very polarizingly different experience to my white Australian friends that travel in their Indian stories as well, right? Because like obviously uh, they couldn't disappear, and they have very different repetitive <laughs> experiences of being over there. But um, yeah, did you have any moments of that, or were you still like processing this? Uh, that's interesting, right? I guess I never really thought about it till you've mentioned it, and that's so true. Because like, you grew up until sixteen, being able to feel well, relatively like that, right? Like you could. Well, Malaysia's interesting, right? Yeah. Because um, while I, you know, I love the country; it's where I grew up and stuff. But mm. it, Indians are still treated as second-class citizens yes. in that country, right? Yep. You know, um, yep. the Malay Muslims are the dominant race. Um, they have more rights, um, mm-hmm. uh, access to. Or more resources, that yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah, I'm not saying that you know I was, um, you know, I can I didn't have those opportunities. Um, I was lucky through you know my mom and dad. Mm. Um, but in Malaysia, you still were, it's still quite race based, right? You're a guest in the country. Yeah, you're a guest in your own country. And mm. I always said people ask me why I love Australia so much. As I say, well, here I have the same rights as everyone else. Okay. In Malaysia, I even the country I was born in, I don't have the same rights as everyone else. Okay. Um. But yeah, no, I'd say actually till you mentioned it, I've never really thought about it that way. I think for me I was always I was so in my head that every time I opened my mouth, they just knew I was a foreigner, right? Yeah. Because I didn't speak Hindi, I didn't speak Tamil, um, none of those languages. People refused to accept it. Yeah. And um without a beard I look less South Asian. Uh-huh. Um and like they would they would just continue to speak to me in Hindi. That's that's my experience in India is that right. People refused to accept the fact that I didn't speak Hindi. Yeah, and would just continue to speak. <laughs> it was you walk into a shop and they just be like, no, they just someone just kept. You must you must speak Hindi? I was like, I don't. I speak Malay. I speak English. But like, you must speak Hindi. I was right. like, I don't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wonder if there's some area like in Tamil Nadu, perhaps, where you could um, speak, use Malay. Um, yeah, well, I really want to do, I really want to go, if I do go back to India, I do want to go south. Mm. I think going to Sri Lanka is really important to me. Yeah. Um, it's where my grandmother is from. She's Tamil, you know, from from Jaffna. Have you had uh, much experiences there? No, I've never been. Never been? Never been. Oh, wow. You went to India, Delhi. Well, we were going to go. Trip. Well, we went in 2019. Yeah. 2020. Ja- February 2020. Wow. Okay. Um, just before COVID hit. And then we wanted to go to Sri Lanka, but currently it's... um with the war and everything that's going on over there. Mm. Um, it was like, said, give it a couple of years. But I, I do want to spend time in Sri Lanka. I'd spend time in south of India. And mm. I think I probably feel a little bit more at home down that end. Yeah. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm a weird one, right? Because like my mum is Punjabi, fair-skinned, north-speaking. Uh, yeah. Dad is Sri Lankan, Tamil. So... You're kind of never really in either camps. Mm. <laughs> mm. You know, you're not Punjabi. But you're not Tamil either. You're half and half, right? And right. you don't because you know I don't speak either languages. I never really fell into either one of those categories. Yeah, yeah. So I think the older I get, um, I definitely find myself trending towards more, you know, identifying more with uh, South Asian, Sri Lankan, 
uh, Tamil uh, culture and that sort of stuff. Right. Yeah. Right. And how like do you, did you ever have like this feeling of like you were shortchanged that you didn't have any language transfer for South Asian languages or how does that feel when you go back there and people people look at you expect to speak a certain language? Yeah. Um. It felt foreign, actually. Yeah. Uh, it's weird, right? You you expect to go to a country like like me go down like oh well this is this is where <laughs> my ancestors are. Both sides of my family are from India, and yeah. like you know you hear so much about it. Yeah. But I never felt more foreign yeah. in the country. Right. Which is a really weird. Never felt more foreign. I never felt more foreign. Whoa. Yeah. Mm, you know, because yeah, it was a weird one because I never felt more foreign in 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 India than I have anywhere else in the world. That's so interesting that yeah. we've, we've had like very polar. Yeah, experiences. it's so <laughs> different, right? Um, and that's the thing. Everyone always talks to me about how great India is, and like you know, yeah, white friends and everyone. Yeah, it's like oh my god, it's so cultural. You know, like, <laughs> so cultural. I'm like, hey, cool. The, I guess the thing is for them, it's like the food, right? I'm like, well, this is, this is nothing of the food is like special to me because right. it's, yeah. it's what we grew up on, right? Right. right. Um, and so that's one type. But then like the people, yeah, the people were lovely, but it still felt really foreign. Mm. Um, so the weird thing is the country that I felt had the nice, the most welcomed ever is Nepal. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. Nepal. Was, and which which parts of uh, uh, Kathmandu, Pokhara, um, in and around. Yeah. Um, I went there with my dad for two weeks mm-hmm. um, hiking, and um, yeah, that was so. Side note, but mm. yeah, India was an interesting. I think I need to go. I think I need to go Sri Lanka, um, and and I know learn more about like uh, my dad's side of the family and mm. um, see that side of things a little bit more mm. um, before I can make a final judgment. But yeah, it was a weird one. Right. <laughs> yeah, I know it's so different because I remember when we caught up last, we had the same conversation about this, and you're like, "No, nah, I, you know, all this," and I was like, "No, nah, I had the opposite reaction." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's it's it's fascinating. Like, I guess yeah, I, despite being born in Dubai, um, and then sort of bouncing around Sri Lanka, visiting Australia, and then migrating when I was 18 months, you know, the, the very very young ages, you're not really going to take in those experience maybe somewhere in your body you get this idea that you're a migrant and maybe that has seeded my kind of nomadic behavior in the past but um but yeah notionally just you know i got to know western sydney and um yeah like not a very multicultural area in the um mid 80s at the the time um i think filipinos was one multicultural group that i remember that was significant but um my my dad being an accountant um wanted to set us up in Western Sydney and buy a place where he could afford, whereas the rest of his family, all of his um, seven, eight siblings and parents like migrated to uh, Sydney and lived in the Eastern suburbs within a couple of years of each other. And, um, and, and then he's like, nope, I, you know, financially <laughs> frugal and sound person. He's like, I'm going to go over here, live where I can afford, even though St. Clair the suburb was next to Mount Druitt and it had, <laughs> you know, that, that, that sort of Logan-esque kind of um, stain on it. And he's like, no, nope, I'm just going to go be there where I can afford. And of course, you know, property booms at the time um, made it, uh, you know, jump in, jump in value over that time. And we had, you know, we weren't, we went right in the throes of Mount Druitt, but that was our local connection to the train line. And we had great experiences there. Those are the days where you still had um, yearly train tickets that were worth some hundreds of dollars. And 
dad dropped his train ticket at the train station one day it was handed in like anyone could have just like had a year of train travel yeah free. that's it and you, you get these sort of like you know these different different narratives around around these places um so you've moved to moved to logan you're in this <laughs> school of white people that are washing over you um that the little the little tr- trio of possible careers how did that influence your like final years of schooling like the subjects that you chose that sort of thing did you gear them in that kind of financial or legal direction uh no i think when i came over here and on the note in the school is like uh it was a great like i had everyone was very welcoming i think one thing about australians maybe where i was and maybe i i was a lucky one Mm. um i didn't face that sort of discrimination or racism all i really had was a lot of people in school who were very interested and excited to have somebody that wasn't from yeah uh, okay you know wasn't from australia and my my group of friends back then were very excited to show me all the things that were australian from vegemite to right Pool parties to um, you know cricket, which I n- never played for and my- played in my life. Yeah, ended up loving. Okay. Um. So side note, but yeah, subjects I took. Uh, uh, I took subjects I enjoyed. Uh, yeah. English, math, drama, legal studies. Um, I did English extension, which is like a literature one. Um, right. And I really enjoyed those subjects. Yeah. Um. And then it was time for university, which is then. Cool. Law school. <laughs> right, right. Did, did you, like, growing up quite in a literature-savvy kind of household, it sounds like, did you, like, want to, I don't know, think about drama or writing or, like, embracing that side? Or did that seem like the, that sort of polarised Malaysian training of, like, arts is failure? <laughs> oh, I love that stuff. So, um, drama, I was in the school choir. Okay. Um, uh, terrible singer, but still, yeah. I was a guy, so they were like, cool, you yeah. can sing. We'll uh, take your voice. Yeah, we'll take your voice. Um, <laughs> I love drama. I did acting classes. Um, I did uh, private acting classes outside that. I wanted to be an actor, that sort of stuff, right? Okay, yeah. Um, and Despite the art equals, like yeah. an actor, like professionally, like chasing that? At, that? In school, yeah, at one point, okay. yeah. I was really one. I love theater. Yeah. Um, I, I still do. Um, but I really love that whole world. Um, I play music, you know, um, play the piano, play the guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't, it's weird, right? Because I've, I've always, I've been thinking, I've thought about this for a really long time and I don't know what was the switch to me go, nah, that's a hobby. I need to find a real career. Yeah. And I kind of point that I don't blame my parents, mm. you know, but I definitely think that my upbringing, um, led me to think there was no other choice. Is yeah, that, it's it? like in, in, you sort of internalized this uh, rhetoric that was around you for so long. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't think my parents, my parents never said to me, no, you you know, you can't do this. Yeah. And, you know, they supported me in all my ventures as yeah. crazy as yeah. any sport I wanted to play, what I wanted to do. They were incredible in that front. But mm. I think I can never really pinpoint why I decided that, you know, arts and that whole world was not a, possibility but mm. university was the only option yeah and it wasn't like a conscious decision or a you know a thing where people were like yep you have to do this mm. uh, it's just that, that was that was that was the only option right so yeah right it's a weird one right yeah it yeah. is it is um in the last podcast here uh huda who is a spoken word poet articulated this far better than i will be able to now <laughs> but she said something like um, black and brown bodies, people, we 
have such pressure on us to show the world that we are good at what we do and accomplished that we with what we do that we tend to choose um, medicine, lawyer, engineer, like careers that are just um, very like black and white. It's like, you, you know, you have to go through this process. Like if you're doing medicine, you got to like go through all these exams and go and at the end you get this thing and you get told, oh, you are great. You are a great member of society. And do you think like it could have been some of that? I think, I think definitely that. And I think it's what you look at your heroes, right? I mean, mm. we're in our 30s and if you look back to when yeah. we were kids, who were our heroes and growing up like, yeah, I always kind of look at, for me, one of the people I respect a lot this day and age is someone like Usman Khawaja. Okay, I'm not um, familiar. Can you... He's a cricketer for Australia, right? Okay, uh, right. Pakistani-born Australian cricketer just won the test, uh, the Shane Warne, like, test cricketer of the year. Okay. But me loving sports, it's like my idols were Shane Warne, yeah. Glenn McGrath, right. blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Yeah. right? Yeah. You don't see a brown guy as your hero. Right. Because the successful... Brown people are doctors, lawyers, right. engineers, yeah. politicians, right. scientists, right? Right, right. Um, even the arts world, and I really talk about the Western world, yeah. you don't see as many brown newscasters, singers, artists yep. in the mainstream media. Now there's, there's more, yeah. there's definitely more. You see them on TV, you see yeah. comedians, you see right. very successful musicians. Um, but 20 years ago... It wasn't really. There might have been one or two, yeah. but a majority of them were, you know, white people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you, as a, as a kid growing up, you sort of look at who your idols are, who are the successful people, who your parents, who they listen to music, who they watch on TV, you know, who they think are important people. Yeah. They were doctors, lawyers, accountants. Yeah, yeah. Scientists. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So... so to, um. If, if you were to look back at your childhood and if you were to see representation of other people, of other brown folk, people that look like you, being successful and thriving in creative careers, do you think that might have, like, maybe not pushed you in that direction, but, like, may, maybe considered your dream of becoming an actor or getting into theatre a, a viable option? Yeah, I think so. I think definitely. I think yeah. if there was more community around that and yeah. saying, you know, what other people can do, yeah. I think that'd be huge. Right. And, um, you know, I think what I'm trying to do now is to show that you don't have to do those careers to be successful. And, you know, if I can influence one person that to consider, hey, maybe not so much creative, but, you know, other worlds, other areas, startups, yeah. companies, things like that, then mm. that's great. I think having be, I think we don't, I think as you know, particularly being brown, I think we didn't realize how much an impact not having that representation across media, across creative industries had yeah. an impact on people growing up. Right, right. I mean, people who've done it, you know, like yourself, have actually gone out and do that and a lot of other people in your podcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um, there's a lot of pressure to be the pioneer. Yeah, That's well, but but it's weird, right? Because you are, like, you, it's still so new, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's like messy. You got to figure out how does this work? Yeah. How does this integrate with family and this and that? And I think it's representation, not so much to the a to the Asian world, but to the Western world, if that makes sense. Because kids are growing up today, you know, brown kids are growing up today in our age, 
um, that watch TV that have uh, watched the news, watch Netflix and that kind of stuff and seeing representation there makes all the difference. Right, because like growing up brown in Australia, there was basically two members that I can think <laughs> of representation. One is Apu from The Simpsons yep. and the other one is, is Kamal. Oh, yeah. And like I was, I don't know if I was even like, um, like conscious of Kamal and there's like a hilarious, um, hilarious side note on the back of that. We're saying, saying, yes, those are Kamal's children. Like the only other brown people, I think, in photo of that album. But I see his records around so many secondhand shops that I just had to buy this one. Um, yeah, uh, you're right, actually. That's it. Kamal and Apu. Kamal and Apu. That's yep. it. And then I don't know if you had this as well, but I had to get like cornered into being like the best Apu impersonator. I, I ended up doing that. And Apu is a, a blatant case. I'm not sure if you dived into it through. Um, it's a white guy. Hurry, hurry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Hank is Hank area. Hank something, area. Something yeah. like that. Have you checked out uh, Hari Kondabolu's The Problem with the Apu documentary? I haven't, I haven't watched it, but I know of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so he goes into that that thing because it's it's a blatant case of, of brown face. So here you have someone uh, replicating a stereotype, pumping it out there to the world, and and it'll go out to somewhere like Logan, maybe in the mid two thousands, um, where in the case of your school, perhaps not many experiences with brown folks and then you you suddenly see a kid did, did you have that like you said you had a pretty warm welcoming response yeah. there did you have like a poo no not really right yeah i didn't have so i so i've got a weird i've had a lucky experience yeah. um particularly <laughs> like and you know the people around me um were not you know they were more interested in showing me a lot about australia and about how they like about the culture here, yeah, than it was anything else, right? Um, and I kind of put it down to a couple of things. One, I still think at the time we were still very much a novelty, particularly yeah. up in Queensland, yeah. Um, okay, uh, you don't really get threatened by novelties, do you? Um, but but you're a novelty, but you're also in Pauline Hanson One Nation era Queensland, yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, that was terrifying. Pauline Hansel was terrifying, like, yeah. particularly coming from from Malaysia, where from the extent from from overseas, what you hear about Australia yeah. at the time, oh, particularly it Queensland, was, it is was already pump, pumping it, out. Oh yeah, it's Pauline Hansen, right? Wow. It's, it was this, uh, you know, this uh, terrifying and growing up in a post nine eleven world as well, being yes. brown, yeah, um, didn't make life that much easier. Yeah, um, but no, I had a. I had a, but despite good, all this, despite all this, I had very, very welcoming friends and right. like people who were like was so excited to show me everything about Australia. Yeah. So I think, yeah. So I, I definitely had a different experience in school. Right. Right. Yeah. And do you think that was something about the the kind of earnest enthusiasm in Logan in the mid two thousands when there was like was it having a big? I'm aware it's had. Um, well, I mean, particularly if I think of Inala, which I perhaps know a little bit more closely, but like strong representation from indigenous community and strong East Asian and very and uh, uh, African diaspora, um, various multicultural elements that almost um, I would imagine dominate the mm. the landscape over the the usual white dominance. Um, was this were you seeing this transition unfold in in the mid two thousand and was there that sort of earnest uh, enthusiasm? I think, like I say, I kind of go back to the point around the novelty. Right? I think at mm. the time when I was in that lucky gap between, uh, you know, that lucky 
world where people were still trying to discover people more migrants were moving to australia yeah. the less so to queensland and that kind of stuff so we were still very much a yeah novelty in a lot of areas um but we weren't domineering if that makes sense yeah so i think people wasn't get like a fear despite yeah. pauline hansen's best efforts yeah but i think there wasn't a there fear, wasn't a fear. no okay. definitely not and not in not in towards the cities and stuff like that you know that pauline hansen sort of out yeah toowoomba area and that yeah kind of stuff. It, it, it switched right it's, is that yeah no toowoomba out that way okay yeah so yeah, I, I, I definitely didn't feel that. And I, everybody was pretty welcoming at the time. Mm. I, I, I don't know, maybe I was oblivious to it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, teachers were friendly. They were, everyone was just so excited. I can always remember, like, I never played cricket in my life. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> like, and the assumptions. The assumptions is, like, you play cricket, right? <laughs> so my group of friends were just, they were all cricket mad. So they would <laughs> take me to play cricket. I was terrible. I never got good at it. But I played. I played in the cricket teams. I played with my friends. It yeah. was great. Right. But, yeah, um, they took me under their wing. Um, like I said, even things like, like, oh, you have to try. They would bring in things like Vegemite because they're like, <laughs> wanted me to try Vegemite. It was like a huge thing for them, right? Yeah, yeah. It was so excited to show me all these things. Right. Um, maybe it was the school I went to, maybe it was the community that I grew up in there, but yeah, I, right. I can't really explain it. I know a lot of people have had very different experiences around my age in with racism and being targeted and that kind of stuff. Mm. But no, I really had very welcoming teachers and students and never really faced that. Right. right. Yeah. So at the time we weren't seeing so much representation in the arts and also I feel representation presence being seeing myself reflected in sustainability circles is often a rare experience for me particularly if i reflect back on when it was starting which was early mid 2000s for me um i was studying industrial design at uh, university of western sydney and we uh i was already taking up whatever film units i, c I could on the side so that was quite telling but a compulsory stream that we had was uh, sustainability and sustainable futures and we spent two weeks doing a consumption diary um, so this is like 2003 four something something around that time and so it like felt pretty new advanced it wasn't really in the conversation like carbon calculator all that sort of thing and um, yeah we just like you know every time we got on the bus or train or turn on the TV like sort of calculated all that and, and we sort of saw that reflected and it was I think I very quickly started riding a bicycle for transport and was really connected to the passion that these teachers were were, were showing. Um, it was a department that was quite led and dominated by women and the men over in other departments were like, oh, d don't listen to um, what those sustainability, but this, this is how it really is. You just got to design products. You know? But I was still latched on to that, that idea. And for me, it, took me out of design and into sustainable event production, which I was in for a bunch of years after that. Without, I imagine you may not have seen yourself represented in sustainable circles. What was your kind of first um, interest in there and how did you sort of move into that direction? Um, I think like a lot of people, yeah, being environmentally friendly has always been a topic. Uh, growing up, it's been a bigger and bigger issue for our generation mm. as we've seen, you know, the older generations not take any action. Yeah, um, yeah. And we've sort of become this generation Gen Ys of, uh, I guess, wait, you know, we just sort of waited 
too long, whereas the generation after us have really just got pissed off and taken action, right? Yeah, yeah. But we we just waited. We waited a lot. We waited for people to change from, you know, Al Gore's documentary yeah. back in the day to, yeah. you know, all these things about climate change. We just waited for the yeah. old the the people we trusted, the gen the the uh the boomer generation yeah. to take action, right? Right, right. Um and so sustainability has always been forefront of my mind and it wasn't until COVID where it really clicked right um, and it was sort of well what's the point and you started seeing it's weird you see the younger generation really start to take action around it yeah um, the school protests that happened around the world yeah. and that kind of stuff and you're like well what what, what are we what, what am I waiting for right um, I want to try and help in that sort of way and mm. that sort of led me down the path to the company I work for now yeah um, a big part of I guess for me was that how we move in the world needs to change. Mm. Um, and I'll say to everyone, I'm a huge car fan. I love cars. Okay. Absolutely love cars. Right. Like I work on cars. I read about cars. I watch videos about cars. Everything. Right. My whole life has been very much about cars. Right. But how we move is so, that's just, you know, doesn't mean I want to be driving every day. Yeah. Right. Because there's alternative ways of transport. Yes. Um, from e-skateboards to e-scooters mm. to um, how we move things and you don't realize how inefficient our cities are and even you look at Brisbane which has a pretty incredible infrastructure around cycling yeah but it's not been designed to be friendly cycling in a lot of ways yeah, um, yeah. it's hot there's mm. no shade mm-hmm. roads end you know we focus on cars so much I read a tweet the other day and it's like the list of things that uh, kids have given up to make way for cars. Have you seen that that one? And then it's like the list of things cars have made way is nothing, (laughs) right? right. And you sort of look back and you suddenly go back to your childhood of cycling down the road, cycling Mm. there, playing in the streets. Yeah, We don't do that now, but yeah, because there's just so much more traffic on the road. It's Mm. not as safe. You don't have quiet streets as much anymore. Yeah. Um, So yeah, having, I think micromobility and you know how people move around the world needs to change drastically if we are to try and improve the world that we live in yeah and it's not as you know it's not buying evs right Mm. um i think a lot of a lot of people seem to think if i buy an ev but that doesn't solve anything it just replaces one car with another yeah particularly if it's still like a single person transport and you can see on the roads you know like how many single person transports and people and i think it goes even further with governments and communities Mm. um creating um, towns and infrastructure that means that people don't have to commute five hours a right. day. Yeah. Um, yeah. Schools and, you know, what happens is inner cities, the public schools in inner cities are really, really good because rich people buy in that area. and mm. But then everyone else doesn't have access to that. Mm. So I think there needs to be a bigger conversation around infrastructure. Right, right. And so your journey with cycling, did you grow up with much, like what's the cycling culture that you grew up with? I'm not a cyclist. Okay. So as here's a big thing for me, right? I grew up cycling as a kid. Like every kid, you had a mountain bike, you cycled around, that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. But I am I may I want to try and make it part of my life mission to turn cycle I hate the fact that cycling is a sport in this country. Yes. Yes. I, I genuinely, genuinely do. I think that it's a form of transport. Mm. It's commuting. It's, mm. you know, um a question that say people have asked me when I say, you know, 
I cycle. It's like, how much, how often do you cycle? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And it's been quite a recent journey for me, right? It's like, I don't, I don't turn on my Apple Watch and put on Strava and yeah. figure out how far I'm going because I, 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 I don't do that in a car. So why would I do that? And for me, it's almost like, I can't remember the last time I walked anywhere. My bicycle is always attached to me. No, and I think for me, it's not just cycling, it's micro mobility. And yeah. I say that, you know, it's scooters, it's uh, skateboards, yeah. it's yeah. e bikes, it's normal bikes, anything, right? It's mm. how we move. I think that's the conversation. I think trying to bottle it to just cycling or, and even though I work within that field, um, yeah. you know, cycling or scooters, or it's over here, it's over there. It's like, no, we need to look at it all as one. It's how we move mm. rather than that's not cars, that's not us sitting in a big metal box yeah. when going two k's down the road. Right, right. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm not a cyclist, not by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. It's a, but then again, uh, if you go back long enough, most people just used it as a form of transport. Right. Yeah, and yeah. now we have the technology to make that easier. I don't know why we aren't embracing it more. Yeah, yeah. Because there was a point in time when everyone used to cycle. Yeah, yeah. Kids would cycle to school, people would cycle to work because mm -hmm. cars were too expensive. Yeah, um, and our lives were a little bit more localized, right? Yeah, we were more localized. Yeah. Um, it's funny, we've got all the technology to make our lives more localized now mm. and make cycling and moving a lot easier, but we don't seem to embrace it. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and the common... The common resistance that um, that many people would have around cycling is like, oh, I don't want to get sweaty, oh, it's too too many hills, or um, don't know how long it's going to take. Like, e-bikes address a lot a lot of these concerns, right? Absolutely, and I think it's funny, right? Um, talking to a lot of people, it's not about cycle. It's not the the cycling part's the easy part. Yeah. Um, you soon realize that actually getting on a bike and cycling, that's easy. Yeah. Most people can do it. A lot of people have fun. It's everything yeah. before and everything after. Yeah. Yeah. It's where do you lock with, your bike? With the assumption that you've grown up with some cycling experience. Like I, I have noticed, um, particularly folks from migrant, some folks from migrant backgrounds, like, uh, just, just didn't, uh, didn't get yeah. exposed to that skill. And so you have this challenge of like, oh, how can we Learn. educate adults? Yeah. Um, yeah. Which my mom is included in that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. True. Um, I think that's the easy part. I personally think cycling is the easy part. Actually getting on a bike and cycling down the road is the easiest part of that whole journey. It's yeah. everything before and everything after that we need to work on. Mm. You know, um, apartments having safe places to park. There yeah. are park yeah. your bikes, yeah. charge your bikes. Mm. Um, access to the equipment, something like lug and carry, you know, being mm. able to access e-bikes at an affordable price and yeah. be able to try that flexibility, having access to helmets or, you know, helmet laws, which are a whole different kettle of fish. Um, all mm. those things, that's that's a big piece just to get people on a bike. Yeah. Then cycling is the easy part. And then the second part of it is parking again. It's businesses, you know, incentivizing people having showers, having places to park e-bikes, having infrastructure that exists within um, yeah. workplaces and schools yeah. um, that encourage people to cycle to school. Right, right. End of to, trip services, right? The yeah, end yeah. of trip services, but not end of trip services. If you've ever been to, and I worked in, you know, worked in Sydney, worked in Brisbane, and I've used end of trip facilities in mm. both areas. It's mm. very much designed for a... <laughs> what you expect the typical cyclist to be, yeah. which is a male riding a road bike of some description, right. parking it in a downstairs garage, yes. um, hanging it on a rack. Right. And, you know, um, 
going to the end of trip facilities, which are in a dark corner. And, yeah. Um, or you're going through a narrow lane, you're going through a car park down underneath mm-hmm. into the back corner of an, of an office block yeah. to park your bike. Yeah. Um, so I think we're getting there, but you know, it's not, it should be front and center, right? Right. Um, and you even think of things like shopping centers. Yeah. Um, Airports. Try and f- go to go to a Westfield and try and find bicycle park. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. Places it's to lock your bike. Not even in the design consideration. It's, yeah, it's in the corner of the car park. <laughs> yeah, down yeah. the back. But we tick that box. Yeah, yeah like done. cool. Yeah, done. <laughs> um, and you try to figure out how to actually get to there. You're like, okay, yeah. cool. I've got to go through with pedestrians down here, park there, and then it's in the far corner. Mm. And you go to your local Woolies, and it's like, oh, cool. There's four bike racks there. They're about yay big. That don't fit. An yes. e-bike, yeah, and that don't that you know if you've got a tiny little race bike, yeah, yep. sweet, cool, I take that box, yeah, yeah. That's all the stuff that we need to work on, mm. and that's all the stuff that you know will make pe- encourage people to actually cycle. Yes, it's like I said, cycling's the easy part. Right. It's all the things before, mm. you know, getting people on a bike, uh, having the right uh, places for people to store their bikes at home, having the right charging, having access to those bikes, yeah, and then. Getting on the road is the easy part, and then all the stuff at the end. I yeah. think that's the problem. Yeah, yeah. Is that we don't spend enough time on either side, and we build everything for a male cycling with a backpack on a light road bike. Yeah, yeah. Down the road. That's right. That's yeah. right. And we are seeing a fair bit in the press now around like fires from lithium-ion batteries. And my take on that is that okay, that risk is there for any product like you know we've had we've had phones exploding on planes that they're not going to like recall all kinds of phones they're going to recall that kind of phone that that had that issue and my take on that is that yeah that that risk is there for any kind of battery and there's ways that you can um manage it but also i think like in in my mind like to invest in an e-bike it is would be a, a wise choice if you're able to start at like the 3k upward range and i feel like um some of these experiences we're seeing with battery fires, like I often see in the press that like, oh, it was a secondhand thing or it was an old thing or, or they just bought it on eBay. And um, f- for me, it seems like that you'd really want to get into a subscription service that's thorough or make a relationship with your dealer like you would if you bought a new car. I think it's doing your research. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, there's not a lot of regulation in the marketplace. Yeah, um, yeah. It's kind of annoying because... There is an opportunity now before it becomes mainstream yes. to actually regulate it, yeah. um, you know, put in standards. We we already have that for cars, for mm. mobile phones, for a whole bunch of stuff. But for e-bikes and e-scooters, you know, there aren't Australian design standards. There yeah. aren't requirements, you know. Yeah. Well, I'm not a biggest fan of red tape. Um, mm. I think it's necessary because... You know, for example, we use Bosch batteries, which are yeah. industry leaders in the market that, that push that are have standards above that's required of the, and they're the ones pushing governments and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. And I think that's that's the key thing there is you know do your research around the brands, do your research around products. Yeah. Um, we live in this Australia is this funny world where you can sell something that's not legal to use. <laughs> um, you know, you can buy a scooter that can go 50Ks an hour, but it's illegal to use in the road, right? Right. Um, so I think there needs to be better regulation around that because at the end of the day, that's that that's the safety aspect of it that we need to consider. Yeah. And we already have that. And a lot of people would say, well, you know, we don't want government overreaching. We want the market, you know, to grow. But mm-hmm. we already have that and it works, you know, yeah. with cars. Yeah. You, cars that come into Australia have to meet a safety standard. If, yeah. I'm not talking about registration here. That's a yeah. whole different method. Right. But 
products that I think responsibility needs to be put back a little bit on retailers um, where, you know, you have to sell products that are safe. Mm, um, mm. That you have to be able to meet certain standards around safety, around reliability, and things like that, and right. put it back on the re- retailer to say, right, you're not allowed to sell unless it meets these requirements. Which I think now we have a bit of a free for all when it comes to because, once again, governments don't catch up with innovation quick enough, right? So mm. explosion of e-bikes and scooters in Brisbane is so far ahead of the curve compared to the other states because yeah. we've legalized this stuff a while ago, mm. whereas the other states are just still grappling with this illegal scooters and illegal skateboards and ride shares and how it's going to work. We're saying Brisbane's matured as a market now. So right. kind of cool to see that here. Yeah. Okay. Right. I do want to finish up on your, your current engagement. Um, we, the reason that we met is that I saw this lovely Instagram ad about a subscription service for yeah. cargo bikes. And I just saw that and it's like, <laughs> brilliant. Like I'm obsessed with leasing. I lease all kinds of things. And I love that kind of subscription model. And I think so many more products and services are going to head in that direction. Um, and then I was pleased to see, uh, I think I reached out with an email or a DM or something. And I was, I was, I was curious to see this name Navin, on, on the email signature. And, um, and then we met up and it's like, oh, there's another brown dude with a beard staring back at me. <laughs> it's like, this is very unusual in sustainable tech subscription startups. We were just talking about um, choosing quality brands, choosing quality. Some e-bikes are definitely in the three, five, seven, 10K uh, price range to to get, st- get started in. And some people look, who have only bought cars before look at that and they're like, oh my God, like what? Is this much on a, on a bike? And here we are talking about quality and reg- regulation, but... How do you do that if you have limited funds? Here's a great way to do that. Can you tell me about how you started to get involved in this? Yeah, absolutely. So I was a customer before I was a, um, before I joined the company. And right. did you was it your first touch point like an Insta ad as well, or like how did you? I can't remember actually. Yeah, uh, I think it was might have been. It was me searching to buy an e bike and not wanting to spend seven thousand dollars on one. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of go back to that whole point that I was saying is that. The cycling part's the easy part. It's getting people on a bike. Yes. And how do you get people on a bike faster? Yeah. It's, you know, how, how do you get people on a bike safely? How do you make sure they have a good experience? And that's the game that we play. Yeah. Um, that's the world that we live in. It's that we want to get people on bikes and we want to educate people about how e-bikes and cargo e-bikes particularly can be, you know, part of your life. Because mm. people get on the bikes and... Yeah. Like, oh, wow. This is really good. This works really well. Oh, yeah. it's completely changed my life. Yeah. Problem is getting people on the bikes. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah. because like test rides to sell e-bike, like people yeah. get on one, they're like, we they have that like childhood feeling of being yeah. on a bike for the first time. <laughs> That's it. And yeah. you know, they're safe. They're easy. Yeah. We try and take all the worry out of it. Mm. And um, our biggest thing is flexibility and you know getting people riding a bike. So mm. uh, it's a weekly subscription. There's no upfront costs. You can swap your accessories as often. It's only twenty eight days to have it. Um, so what we get is a lot of people coming on board and trying it for 28 days and going, wow, this has changed my life. I'm going to keep going. Yeah. Or people going, oh, it's not really going to work with my life. And that's okay. That's still getting people to, to look outside driving two case down the road right. or catching an Uber yeah. or, you know, do it, uh, they're like, oh, well, actually the e-bike's not really going to work for me. Right. Um, 
but I might have a friend that, oh, that could work really well. So yeah. I think getting people onto the bike and showing that it's easy, that, you know, that's worry-free, they're on a reliable, safe product that they can fit to their lifestyle. Yeah. Um, it's a big part of what we do. Right. Um, and that's been the really exciting thing. Like I said, I'm not a cyclist. Um, most of our customers are not cyclists. Or, right. Um, but they're, they're just mums and dads who want a better way to get their kids to school, want a better way to connect with their kids, um, right. want something that doesn't involve getting in a car, driving two k's down the road. Right. So, you know, and that for me is a big thing is around getting more people on the bike. We all know cycling is great for your, for your physical health, for your mental health. Um, it's good, better for the environment, not just from a pollution standpoint, but from a congestion standpoint. Yeah. Um, so having, you know, having, giving people access to that through what we do is something that's really exciting to see, particularly in Brisbane, because I know the amount of people that have been on the road, mm. you know, the, these are all people who normally would drive yeah. or yeah. Um, use alternative methods. Now we have more cyclists in the road, yeah. which is kind of a cool thing. And so, something I love about that magic combination of particularly the turn bikes that you use, so a company that's known for folding bikes and yeah. <laughs> re really cut its teeth, making the most of um, small spaces and small wheels and the added cargo capacity that that allows. So we've got um, folding bike history, uh, e-bike assistance, and and the ability to carry a significant amount of load, yeah. which really straight, straight away throws you down this really viable car alternative, right? That's it. It's the second car. Yeah. And that's where we said, you know, it's the second car. Some people have replaced their cars. Mm. Um, if you can carry stuff and most normal bikes, you can't. Yeah. The bikes are great, so you have to carry something, yeah. right? Yeah. You know as well as I do. So having a cargo bike that can carry 200 kilos yeah. is incredible. And, you know, it means going shopping, carrying the kids, taking a dog for to the vet or to the park, yeah. um, going to Bunnings, uh, <laughs> going to Ikea. You can, you'd be surprised at what you can actually do on a cargo bike. Yeah. Um, and I think for a lot of people till they see it, um, they're not going to believe it. So that's what we try to do is show people. Right, right. Yeah. And so started in Melbourne, Sydney, and now Brisbane. Yep. Where where are we at? What's in the year ahead for Logan Carry? Um, well, we're just going to get more customers, expand to other parts of Australia, grow the team in Brisbane. That's my focus. Yeah. Um, try and get up to as many people in Queensland as we can. And okay. Try and get more people cycling. Great, great. <laughs> and I feel like I've, I've like, passed you on the roads a couple of times because, I have, yeah. because there's no other brown dudes riding cargo <laughs> e e-bikes. Tell me like just quickly to finish up, what's your experience being a brown dude on an e-bike in an urban Australian city? Oh, uh, Who's not a food delivery driver? Well, that's the thing. If you try and go into a restaurant, <laughs> they, generally if you're on a, you know as well as I do, if you walk into a restaurant with a helmet, with a bicycle <laughs> helmet, you get directed over to the, uh, which is kind of sad, but you, You've had that experience, yeah. right? Yeah. So I feel like it's an exclusive brown dude experience thing. If you if you cycle and have a helmet, especially in winter, because you're wearing like a jumper or something like that, it's right. like over there. I'm like, ah, <laughs> oh, yeah, every time. Uh, I just want to order some ramen to eat. Yeah, in, yeah. It's like, like, it's like I'm, I get takeaway. My wife will order takeaway. Yeah. I've had that in Sydney. My God, be like, hi, I'm here to pick up takeaway. They're like, oh, like show me. I was like, I don't know. She called and ordered. She sent me to pick it up. <laughs> and they're like very confused or they direct me over oh you know show your phone because I think they have like an app they yeah. show like a scan thing or something like yeah, that yeah yeah so 
And I'm just like, no, no, I'm just, yeah. Like, but yeah, that is a brown dude drive, <laughs> riding an e-bike in Australia at the moment. It's a unique experience, I think. <laughs> That's not a delivery driver. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Navin, thank you for the brown dude on an e-bike solidarity. Uh, lovely to have you on uh, today. Thank <laughs> you.